Okay, Dafdalar Mabase. First of all, before we start off, today's breakfast was sponsored by Jonathan and Elisa Gellis in honor of Talia and Brandon's engagement. Baruch Hashem, huge mazel tov. By the way, you should just know I saw, I don't know who wrote this or who this is from, but someone said that during a wartime, when there's a marriage, that's the ultimate sign of like, you know, we're telling the enemy we are growing, we're continuing marriages, literally, it's the beginning of new life. It's the beginning of a new generation. It's a whole new, so it's the ultimate like, you know, simcha right now. Baruch Hashem. Okay, so Amur Rabbi Abad. Kol Eichel Pas below Nigov Okay, we started this last time, just going to go through it quickly. He says, anybody who eats bread without washing their hands, without drying their hands, excuse me, Kilu Eichel Lechem Tomei, it's as if he ate impure bread. What was the reason that we said? Was because anything which the Torah considers to be repulsive is considered Tomei. And that's a general rule. Anything which the Torah finds to be repulsive, tummy. Shnemar, it says in Yecheskel, Vayemar Hashem, Kocha Yechlu Bnei Yisrael, Es Lachmam, Tomei Vegomer. Yes, so he says over there that the Jewish people eating the impure bread, anything which is repulsive, so the, Gemar, the, the Torah considers it to touch wet bread with your hands to be gross. Um, is it anything that the, the Torah says, uh, or man says it's repulsive? So there are certain things, so it's both. It's both. So I've seen a few times in the Gemara, the Torah, that it's both. Sometimes the Torah will say something is repulsive, and then you could say, okay, maybe today that's not repulsive anymore for so whatever reason. Does the Torah say that uh, bread is repulsive? No, that wet bread. When you, bread, take, bread. you wash your hands, your hands are all wet, but and then you pick up the bread. the Torah says wet bread is repulsive? Yeah, that they so, get the bread, bread so, wet with your hands. So again, it, it, uh, it doesn't make sense because, as I said last time, there are some farmers, specifically on Pesach, who wet their matzah. No, but that might be Why? different because the matzah is crunchy. Like soft maybe, matzah. yeah. They make the soft matzah. No, no, no so no, that no, might be different. They make regular hard dry matzah. Yeah. They wrap a, towel, a wet and they uh, soak a wet towel. They wrap it around. They put it on the table. Hot. But because you're saying, yeah. Because they don't eat the rocks and all this other garbage. Oh, you eat yeah. the rocks. <laughs> you would still never purposely make it wet if you're putting it. But in you soup. do. You put it in your soup. Yeah, you, you put it in, in your soup. But you have to ask yourself. Yeah. Is that is that gross? But you have, to ask, yourself, you have to ask yourself. You have to ask yourself. You're sitting down. No, no, no. That is the subject. The subject he's saying is that if it's tuma because wet bread is gross. But wait a second. But it might be. It might be that on Pesach, it come when it comes to things like that of what you're describing. It's very possible that it's a very specific sect of Spartan. and it's very possible that it's specifically Pesach. Maybe because the matzah is too crunchy, or maybe because they, you know, maybe when they left Egypt it was wet. I don't know exactly, but we're talking about bread on Shabbos, so it's a different, yeah. Bread on, no, bread, but generally speaking, we're talking about when somebody washes for bread and they pick up the bread. So matzah on Pesach, it might be a specific custom that they have, but they don't do that, meaning they don't do that for bread every time they eat bread. No. Yeah, so I'm saying we're talking about regular eating bread, your hands are wet, and instead of drawing your hands, your hands are all wet. Like just imagine, if I put it like this very simple, imagine you're sitting at the Shabbos table, you're at someone's house, who's the host, and the host comes, his hands are soaking wet, and he picks up the chalas to make hamotzi. If you were sitting there, you'd be like, you know, why don't you dry your hands before you, before you picked up the chalas? So I'm saying that, today I think that still applies. I think everybody would be thinking that if he picked up the chalas with wet hands, everybody would be on the same page. Like, that's just weird, you know? Okay, so he says like this. Yeah, I just want to clarify one thing, if I may. Yeah, absolutely.
Yeah. What we're saying is, first of all, wet on food can pass to not. Yeah. So first of all, it's a question of can you really make some of it? Here we're about meals. Meals is like filthy. It's not, it's not, it's not pleasant, okay? So he's saying, Nechshav, Savanus Kritum. I mean, treat it as if it was Tuma. In other words, some of your meals should stay away from Okay? And you have to clarify that you can't say that it has the laws of Tuma. It's not the same thing. Yeah. No, but so that but so but over here it's adding, and this is important. Over here it's adding that a dove or hamos, something which is filthy or something repulsive, is tummy. No, it's called like tummy. Yeah. Like tummy, it's not tummy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So and there, therefore, because when you're when you're in a state of tuma, yeah, you're no, you're right. So it's a separate, tuma, yeah. You can't just wash your hands with soap and water and move on, right? Right. But with no, but today, today, today we I consider, put my hand in the toilet, I yeah. Just wash my hands and move but on. that's what's like. But that's a separate discussion because today everyone is bechaz kastam. No, no, I'm not yeah. talking about today. I'm talking about in the day. Yeah. Okay. Tuma was a whole cleansing process. It was not you just wash your hands. Yeah. Okay, again, because Tuma is a spiritual thing. It has nothing to do with Yes. Yes. Okay, so here we go. Umai, So there's a very interesting pasuk, which comes from Mishle. Okay? So in Mishle, what's the reason why the Gemara is bringing this up? It's because we already brought so he says it continues in Mishlei, and that's why the Gemara is bringing up this verse of the Aishas Ish Nefesh Yikaratatzot, okay? I'm not going to get into it until the Gemara gets into it, because you're going to see it's a little complicated. Amr Rabchia Bar Abba, Amr Rabbi Yochanan. Rabchia Bar Abba says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, Kol Adam, Sheyeshbo Gasus Haruach, anybody who has an ego, who's haughty, Lebasof Nechshal Be'eishas Ish. At the end, he is going to be, he's going to fall, he's going to trip in being with a man, another man's wife. He's going to have an issue with other men's wife. Shehemar, as it says in the verse, So it says the way he translated it over there is that uh, somebody who is married to another man is basically trapping the nefesh shikara, which over here, nefesh shikara means, and that's what the Gemara is going to dissect over here. Nefesh shikara means a precious soul, right? So over here, the Gemara is translating that as somebody who is haughty, somebody who is egotistical, who sees their own soul as being very precious. So Amar Rava, the Gemara Rava is going to dissect this. High nefesh shikara, nefesh gavoa mi The lashon, the language over here, nefesh shikara has a good connotation, which is interesting over here because if you notice, um, in general he's not here right now, but Ruby is very precise with language, right? Ruby is very precise with pronunciation, everything, and sometimes it seems extremely precise. But if you look in the Torah, you'll see the Torah is very precise with the language. So over here, nefesh shikara, nefesh gavoa are not the same thing, but they have different connotations. And the connotation makes a huge difference. So nefesh shikara sounds like a precious in a good way. And nefesh gavoa means in an egotistical way. Gavoa means that he's high, he's haughty, he's full of hot air, everything. So Rava says that doesn't fit the language of the verse to say that. Va'od, and even further, he tatsud mi It should say she traps him, not tatsud, as if he traps her. It should say she traps him, he tatsud, she's being trapped. 
So that doesn't fit. He says that doesn't that explanation doesn't fit. We throw that on the side. What does it mean? El Amar Rava. Rava comes along. He pushes aside Rav Chia Baraba, and he says, Kol Habal Ishes Ish, Afilu Lama Tayra, Dersivba Yekara Himepninim, Mikoin Gadol Shenichnas Lefnai VeLefnim, He Titzudenu Ladina Shal Gehenna, which means anybody who has relations with another man's wife. Even if he is a Tamil Chacham, which we say about a Tamil Chacham, that he is greater than the Kohen Gadol going into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, he's the greatest, highest level. Even he's on such a high level, we say, no, we say that if he is with another man's wife, he goes straight to Gehenna. He goes all the way from his high heights of being higher than the Kohen Gadol, all the way to the bottom of the depths, like that. That's something which takes a man all the way down. Even a king? What? Even a king? Anybody. Yes, anybody. Anybody, even a high, very high level, if somebody is with another man's wife, that takes them to Dino Shogahinam. And over here, I think the reason why he brings the Talmud Chacham is because that is the highest level, one of the highest levels, and he's showing even somebody on that level, if he's with another man's wife, that, you know, pretty much loses everything, all of his status, goes straight down the toilet. Yeah, that's how it makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. meaning even a Nefesh Yikara, which it is the good connotation, even somebody who's a Talmud Chacham, and therefore he's a Nefesh Yikara, he's a precious soul, he's trapped to Gehenna if he's with another man's wife. We sound like this. Um, I want to point out a note over here, a med, uh, Mepharish that's very interesting over here. He says that humility is the Mishkan for Ruach HaKdusha. Somebody who's humble, which over here is what the Gemara is going to be focusing on, this sogya, this idea. Humility is the dwelling place of holiness. So too the opposite, because in general we say a very interesting concept, that everything was made in the world opposites, right? Which actually this week's Parsha is where we're introduced to that idea, probably the first time. Right where you have Yaakov and Esau in the stomach and they're battling back and forth. So he says over here, everything was made with opposites. So just like humility, somebody who's humble, over there, that is a dwelling place for holiness. So to the opposite, somebody who's egotistical, that is the dwelling place for impurity, for klipa, for ruach Which is, this is what drags a person, which is the Tiferes Tzion says, which is very interesting that he connects the two, is that he says, how does a person end up coming to forbidden relationships, right? The Gemara speaks about, not the Gemara, excuse me. The Torah speaks about how the Jewish people had problems with Arayers, with forbidden relationships. So the Tiferes Tzion comes along and says, how does a person come along to a forbidden relationship? Is ego. If a person was humble and he had very clear in his mind, what's not mine is not mine, and what's mine is mine, and that's it, then you know, stay in my lane and everything, then he wouldn't have a problem. But when a person starts thinking, aha, you know, I'm so great, look at me, then all of a sudden he starts, his boundaries and his, his rules of society start fading away. So that's really the source. And like I mentioned one time, there's a whole magnum opus of one of the, one of the famous Hasidic Rebbe's where he speaks about how ego is truly the source. I'm not even talking about impurity. Over here, the Gemara is talking about spiritual impurity. That ego is the source of 99.9% .9 of your problems in life. Anytime you're upset about something, it comes from a place of ego. And yes, we have to have a healthy self-esteem so we're not doormats, so people don't trample on us. But if you think about it, anytime you're angry, which is really what he breaks down, is about anger. Anytime you're angry, it comes from a place of magiali, you know, like as if like I deserve it. And how did this happen to me? Right? I remember I heard, I forgot who I heard this from. It's actually a great line. That he says, nobody asks, why did this happen to me when something good happens? Nobody says, oh, I made a huge business deal. I made $10 million. It's like, why did this happen to me? No one says that. Everyone says, wow, you know, I really worked and I really, you know, I'm... 
really a great guy, and now finally uh, the world has, has recognized my greatness. Nobody has any questions when good stuff happens. It's only when something bad happens, everyone's like, oh my gosh, how does that make any sense? Impossible, right? So he's saying it comes from a place of ego. He continues over here in the Ion Yaakov that he connects the idea of ego and sin, that he says in general, sinning and ego are inherently created. And the Maharal and the Tivot Olam goes very much into this idea, very much into this idea. His Nativa Anova, where he speaks about humility, he very much goes into this idea how, like we were just speaking just now, how ego truly is the source of everything that could be bad and negative in your life. By the way, the reason why that's relevant and very, very practical is because a lot of times when you're angry, it just take a slice of humble pie and all of a sudden you'll see your emotions completely change. And all of a sudden when you work on your ego, it's the source. Instead of like dealing with the superficial issue, you go to the source and it actually will make you feel much better. Anybody who has a big ego, it's as if he is serving Avodazara. What does that mean? So he says over here that, oh, wait a second, I just want to mention another Mepharsh it says on the last piece. It says that in Behoroyos, in, in Gemara Horoyos, it says that even a Mamzer, if he's, remember we were speaking before about a Talmud Chacham, right? That it says even a Mamzer, if he's a Talmud Chacham, it says that he goes before a Kohen Gadol for many things. Like I know today, practically speaking, when it comes to Aliyahs, right? We have it basic, like obvious, when it comes to Aliyahs for the Torah, it's Kohen Levi Yisrael. What's the idea behind that? Why do we do Kohen Levi Yisrael? It's not like just because to make sure all three tribes get a piece. It's, the idea is about honor, right? Kohen Levi Yisrael. So really over here in this Pirush, it's very interesting. It actually says the way that it's meant to be is that you're meant to do it actually by honor. You're meant to give first the big Talmud Chacham and Aliyah. You know Kohen Levi Yisrael. You're meant to give the first, the biggest Talmud Chacham and Aliyah then the next Tamar Chacham, then this, then that, maybe uh, whoever it is, by honor. But because then that could lead to big issues, because then the question is, who's the biggest Tamar Chacham? Then you have three rabbis sitting there, then you have a big problem, then you could have, I remember someone telling me that one time they had a wedding in Lakewood. He was at this wedding, and it was one of the big, big Gvirim that sponsors the Mir and everything, a massive, very famous donor. And by the wedding, they had all the Gedolim come to the wedding. So he said probably the hardest part of planning the wedding was how to seat the gedolim, to seat all the Rashi Yeshivas. Because by which seat, that's the seat that has the most honor. So they had to figure out when they were setting up this huge ches table where all the Rashi Yeshivas would sit, where would each guy sit to not... That was probably the hardest part of planning the whole wedding because you don't want to... A Tamil Chacham, it's not a joke. You don't want to offend anyone, right? And you have to be very careful. So where does everybody sit? It's a whole to-do, right? So over here he's talking about how basically what he says is even... Uh, Mamzer, right? Which we say Mamzer is born spiritually, physically. It's something which is one of the hardest things really to understand in the Torah for me personally. Because the kid didn't do anything. He's totally innocent. And he's given this black stamp for his whole life. And he can't really ever get out of it. It's a very, very hard subject to understand. But the Torah says even somebody who has that, he's born a Mamzer. If he's a Tamil Chacham, he goes before the Kohen Gadol. Right? So we're saying he's trying to bring out the Chashivos, how far we're talking that a person could be on such a high level, and if he has a problem with another man's wife, he goes all the way to the bottom. That's the way it works. Okay, so he says like this. Um, okay, so I want to show you guys a Taisvis before we continue to the next piece. This Taisvis over here, he titsudanu ladina shal 
on the right side of the page, the second Taisvist, Dalad Amr Beis. He says, It says similarly in the first parak of Mesechtas Hagiga, on Daftes Amr Beis, Kol haba al eshes ish, va'asra al baila, netrad min oilam. Anybody who has relations with another man's wife, he is driven from the world. And and also it says interesting. He adds in over here. He makes her forbidden to her husband, which is interesting that he puts that in here because seemingly the main issue is adultery. But he's adding in now what he essentially did is he destroyed a marriage because we say like we said in Sota, if there's a situation where. The husband or wife is caught cheating and it's caught and it's a fact and they can't be together anymore. So essentially, by causing this cheating situation, he ended a marriage completely. So we say any man who does that, he is driven from the world. But now we have a question. In Baba Metziah, Daphne Tesom and Aleph, Da'amar ha'ba'al eishis ish misasei b'chenek v'yesh le'chelek le'lam haba. So it says over there, a complete contradiction. Over here we're saying, the man is driven from the world and he gets Gehenna, period. He basically gets the worst thing you get. He dies and he goes to hell. That's pretty much simple English. He dies and goes to hell. Over here we're saying, not over here, excuse me, above a Metziah, they're saying, no, what happens is he is killed. His execution is with strangulation. But then he goes to Olam Haba. So how do you reconcile these two Gemaras? So Vyeshlomar, and possibly you could say, that over there it's talking about when the husband did Shuvah. And this is proven from what it says in Yavamais. In a situation of, of relations, of forbidden relations, where a mamzer was not born, because we say if a mamzer is born, like I said, it's really one of the hardest sugyas to understand in the Torah, because generally speaking, we have this idea that you could always do tshuva, right? You could always do tshuva, you could come back from anything. Now, what happens if a mamzer is born, right? Now you have a physical manifestation of a sin, and... You really can't fix it. You really can't do anything about it. So it's a very interesting sugya of the Torah. So it says over here in Yavamos, when there was no mamzer born, which is very important, because if a mamzer is born, then seemingly there's really not much he can do. When there is a mamzer not born, davar tshuvahi, then it's possible to do tshuva. What's the tshuva for, for uh, adultery? So he's about to say now. He's about to continue. V'tshuva in Yisurin dafke. Right away, because someone's going to say, what's the tshuva? So the, what's the tshuva? Is Yisurin, is physical pain, punishments. That's the only way to do tshuva in this case. Sanhedrin Omar David kol gavra. So David HaMelech was screaming to Hashem. He says, what's this guy supposed to do? He committed adultery, he committed a sin. Okay, fine, he's a human being. We understand he made a mistake. He calls Hashem, what's he supposed to do? So Hashem says back to him, Omar lay. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says back to David, Kibbal Allah Yisurim, Allah Yisurim. Take upon yourself physical punishments and that will be your redemption, that will be your tshuva. V'chenek nami ki Yisurim, v'kol ha-mumsim misvadim. I think it's mumtim. Mumtim, yes. Anybody, anybody that is, I believe it says if he is, um, if anybody is executed, excuse me, anybody is executed by the Beistim, they do vidui, they confess. Okay? So it's very interesting over here. How does he reconcile these two Gemaras? Very simple. So he says, our Gemara over here says that if a man has relations with another man's wife, he, is, he dies and goes to hell. The other Gemara says what happens is he is strangled, he's executed by strangulation, and then he goes to Elam Haba. So what does he say? He says, very simple. He says, if the man goes through the execution of the Beistin, then he's going to do tshuva. How is he going to do tshuva? 
through the exact way that Hashem prescribes, through Yasurin, through physical pain. So the actual strangulation is what's allowing him to then go to Olam Haba. If he doesn't go through this execution process and he just dies, then he's going to go to Gehenna because he never went through the proper Tshuva process to be able to go to Shemayim, to be able to, excuse me, to be able to go to Gan Eden. Um, so Vahai Da'amar, Vahai Da'amar Nitrad Min Ha'olam, Pirush Min Ha'olam Im Oisei Avoy. And what does it mean when it says he's driven from the world? So now he's explaining the full thing. What does it mean that he's driven from the world and he dies? It means that he leaves the world carrying this sin. So the Riva comes along and says, which is very interesting, because if you know the stringencies and the levels of the way the Torah prescribes, a man having incestuous relations with his sister is midaraisa. It's one of the worst uh, level of arayas a person can have. So the Riva comes along and says that if a man has commits adultery with another man's wife, and therefore he causes them to be forbidden to each other, it's as bad as having incestuous relations with your sister and having a mamzer, meaning in addition to actually producing a mamzer from that relationship. So the Riva holds it in a very uh, serious regard. Inami, alternatively, Yeah, so very simple. That's the simple, everyone understands that? Make sense? The whole package? Yeah? Pretty intense. Listen, I'm, Chabad, generally, we don't do so much Muslim, so I'm not so used to the, the punishments <laughs> and the Yisurim and everything, so this is it's refreshing. It's nice to know what's the... <laughs> no, I mean, generally speaking, I'm telling you, in, in generally speaking, in Chabad, it's only positive. That's the key. Because it's interesting, I will tell you, now that we're speaking, it's a very intense Gemara, so I will mention this idea, because I do find this idea to be very practically powerful for me, is that what can happen is, if you focus a lot of the negative, which the Torah does, the Torah mentions a lot of the negative, because it's important, right? If you focus too much on the negative, people don't work well when they're motivated by, meaning if you're depressed, just give you an example, very simple practical example that can happen. A person could mess up. Maybe, I don't know what it is, like maybe what the, what the Gemara is talking about, he has an issue with Aisha's ish, with another man's wife, right? He could say to himself, you know what? I just can't help myself. I can't control myself. Forget about it. I'm this pathetic you know, loser or disgusting, vile person, and that's it. There's nothing I could do. This is the way I was created. So you see over there how the negativity can lead to Yish, right? Meaning, the Balatanya and the Tanya, he explains this idea psychologically that a person, when it comes to sin, especially from the fact that we're human beings, so we continuously sin, we sin all the time. We know we sin all the time because the Gemara, the Torah says it, this Chuba is a whole chilek of the Torah because we know that we sin all the time. And if we're constantly putting ourselves down, then it's very easy to have yush. In order to be able to keep going, you need to be in a positive mentality. If you're not in a positive mentality, then you don't want to grow. And you actually see this actually just happened in the NFL also. By the way, it's happened in football. There was a coach who was just fired. He's a brilliant coach, and every time he gets hired, he gets a big, massive contract. I think he was fired from the Las Vegas Raiders. I think the Raiders right now are paying their last two coaches $85 million to not coach the team. The last two coaches. Okay? Eighty-five million dollars to There's not coach them. Also. What? Also. Yeah. And what was the issue with this coach? The players were saying, "What was the issue?" And now they switch the coach. And by the way, they just won the last two games against good teams. They completely changed. What was the issue? All the players were saying he was a very negative guy. He would always, always put down the players. And you're talking about grown men. I mean, you're talking about guys who are superstars and everything. He would always come into the team meetings. You suck. You this. You messed up which really comes from his mentor, that Belichick, and the Patriots. He's a very intense, very negative guy. And that's how he controls the team. 
but you see it doesn't work. The coaches that have, you know, okay, you know, whip him into shape when he needs to be whipped into shape, but also smile when a player needs a smile, it works. So I'm just saying this idea of the negative positive education, it's very important because it really is important that sometimes when a person thinks that they put themselves down, that they think, oh, wow, I'm being so from because I'm like feeling bad and everything, it can actually cause you to come to a situation of Jewish and say, okay, you know what? I can't handle this guilt anymore. I'm letting it go. Happens to a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people especially, Jewish guilt. It's like, I can't handle the Jewish guilt anymore. I'm dropping the whole thing. I don't want to be a part of this at all. And then you'll see, that's why, that's why, I'm just going on this train of thought, ending this idea right here. That's why a lot of times, as kids, when we would do Mitzrayim, we would ask people to put on tefillin, the way you could tell who's Jewish is not the guy, anybody who comes over to you and makes a big smile is not Jewish, in general. If they walk past you, and they come over to you and say, wow, so nice. I remember one time we went to Canada. I was in the, what's it called? Um, what, I think Western University it's called. In Canada, it's a nice university over there in Ontario. Every Canadian not-Jewish person that we met, they were like, oh, so nice, so nice. They were helping us. They were like, oh, I'll help you find my Jewish friends and everything. Anybody who you meet is Jewish starts running. The second you see a guy pick up the pace, you know he's Jewish. I'm not even kidding. And it's like nine times out of ten. You know he's Jewish if he looks at you and he starts picking up the pace like, I got to get out of here. That guy's Jewish. Okay? Because the question I'm sure you like is what you said about positive and negative. Yeah. No, so yeah, no, so it's a balance. That's all I'm saying is that it's a balance. Meaning right now, for example, we're learning this Gemara, which is telling very extreme punishments, right? We're saying if somebody is with another man, if a man is with another man's wife, he is going to, we're speaking very extreme here, he's going to die, he's going to go straight to hell. If he doesn't die and go straight to hell, he needs to be strangled in order to be able to get a piece of Olam Haba. So we're not being gentle or kind to this guy. That being said, I'm adding over here when we're discussing this, that it's important to have the balance of the two, of the positive reinforcement and the negative, you know, kick in the tush when it's needed. That's the idea. Yeah, but if you only, because if you only are positive, how can you face your... No, 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 for sure, no. So we're not only positive. That's Nachman, that's Breslov. We're not Breslov. <laughs> did you hear the song? There's a song that they came out with recently. I don't know if any of everybody heard it. But you ever, there's a song. It's very cute the way he does it. There's a Jewish singer. I think his name is Yoli Leibowitz or something. I forgot what his name is. It's part of this thank you Hashem, you know, thing that's going around, the whole thank you Hashem. Right. He makes a song where he basically goes through all the different, like, sects of Judaism where he says, you don't have to be Breslov to be happy. No, you that's an old song. That's an old song? Yeah. It's very funny. No, he goes, saying you don't have to be Tzioni to love Eretz Yisrael. Exactly. Right. Like, like, we put ourselves in categories, very extreme yeah. categories. Yeah. Like, this is like this, like this. It's a, it's a balance. That's the key. It's not going too much to the negative because then you'll have Yush. It's to say, you know what, okay, I messed up, I'm going to pick myself up and move on. And when you need some, some bitush, when you need some musr, you need some musr. You need both. That's really, I guess, why people say parenting is so hard. I'm not at the stage yet where we need to do so much education. But parenting is very hard because that's what the parent is entrusted with, is to know when to give a kick when it's needed and when to give a hug when it's needed. Very difficult to know, right? Okay, what are you saying? When, uh, does all this apply to the woman as well? I don't know. I don't know. No, right now we're talking about the men. I'm not sure what her, what her punishment is. It's a good question. It's a good question. I'm not sure. What? Okay. Oh, we said this already. Okay. So it says, 
Ksiv Halcha, it says over here, To Avas Hashem Kol Gvalev. It says in Mishlei, To Avas Hashem Kol Gvalev. Ksiv Hasam, and it says over there, Velo Savi Toeva El Beisecha. Yes? So the fact that it says this word, Toeva, um, it's bringing this idea that a person who has a high, a haughtiness, he brings a Vodazara, it's considered like a Vodazkafavim. Now over here, there's a few different Purushim, okay? Over here, it's very interesting. Why? Why is it considered somebody who's egotistical to be Mamish Avodazara? Why is that? How does one go to the other, right? Because especially we know today, Avodazara is not particularly attractive. Like, I don't think it's a big epidemic that we're losing Jewish people to bowing to, I don't know what, to an idol or something like that. To India. Yeah? Buddha. So, yeah, okay. So the Me'iri comes along and says, what's the connection between Avodazara and haughtiness? So the Me'iri comes along and he says that a person, that his nature is to argue with the truth in order to bring down anybody who's against him. Which I don't know if you ever met a character like this. I actually had, without saying any names, Hashem, I actually had a good friend who mamish, like the way the Me'iri describes this guy, he literally is like the prototype. Someone who is called, we call it a bedafkanik, okay? Somebody who, that no matter what his opinion was before, when he's in front of you, he's just going to argue the opposite opinion, right? Where I had a friend, he was, when he was in yeshiva, he was telling all of us why Christianity makes more sense than Judaism. Then he went to a, a, a school, like a public school, he was telling all of them why the Rebbe was Mashiach. He was the guy who was like, from side to side, he was always, you know, like just going, whatever is in front of him, he's going to knock down this guy in front of him. So he's saying that can come from a place where he's not, his opinions don't come from a place of truth, and he's just looking to be a bedafkanik, and then he gets lost, and therefore he's saying this comes from ego. It comes from just wanting to argue and debate and not coming from a place of truth. Another purist comes along and says that what's the reason why haughtiness has a connection to Gaiva is because he thinks <coughs> he thinks that when he's successful, it's in the schus of his chachma. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, excuse me. He says he thinks, listen to how this, this opinion actually makes it very like, puts it very clear of how it's exactly like Avodah In general, what's the thought process of somebody who's over the Avodah right? There's actually Svarim where they go through what was the mistake of the Odeh Avodah Generally speaking, it's not that they believe there was no God, right? It's that they believed the basic difference between somebody who is a believer in Hashem and somebody who is an Oved the Avodah is how Hashem created the world. If you are a believer in Hashem, a believer in Judaism, a believer the way it's meant to be, is that you believe that Hashem created the world from um, nothing into something, and therefore the creation has to be constant. Why? When you create something from something, you're taking one material and you're making it into another material. Therefore, if you would die two seconds later, this material is going to live on without you, even though you created it. It has no dependence on you. But if you create something from nothing, that needs to be constantly recreated, okay? And therefore, Hashem has to be constantly involved in the world. Somebody who's over the Zara, he believes something very simple. Not that there's no God, it's that there is a God, but now he appointed ministers to run the world. So let's say we serve the sun. Why do we serve the sun? The sun makes the crops grow, right? If we go back to medieval times or whatever, how did everything run? Is you need food. What makes the food grow is the sun. So you say the sun, okay, wow, God appointed this big ball of fire to be the minister over our lives. And it's not that we believe there's no God. We believe that God came along. He created this whole tapestry. And now it's continuing without God having to be involved. 
similar to the way you would say if you describe like a, a president and the governors or whatever in that context where you have like a prime minister and then you have the mayor of every city, right? So over there, the prime minister doesn't have to be running every city in the whole country. You have the mayors who run their city and the prime minister runs the general country. That's the way an Ovedevodazar thinks. Why is that relevant? Is because then they think that you get everything based on merit, not based on just because that's the way God decided, which is what we believe. We believe God decides and that's what it is. They believe everything is based on merit, which means if you're successful, you say to yourself, I'm successful in the schos of my intellectual capacity or my brilliance or my hard work or whatever it is. That is an idea, which is avodazara. To say that I get, what? That's an idea, but meaning with that train of thought. That train of thought is an avodazara. It's to think that this is the way things are and this system God appointed for it to run by itself. You get what I'm saying? Basically, the simple way to put it is that any time a person thinks there's any step in the entire way that this world runs, that God is not intimately involved, that's Ovo Dezara. Every single step of the entire process is God. And there's no step where it's missing. That's what he's saying over here. The fact that a person could even think, oh, this is Ovo Dezara, just to get it to this extent. A person could even think 100%, I'm created by God, my parents are created by God, everything I have, has, everything I have is created by God. But the fact that I was created with this intellectual capacity, okay, so now I took that intellectual capacity and now I did it by myself. That's a, that's a, that's a major argument in the Yiddish Zeitung in general. What? The Rambam and like the Hasidic world is that God, if God paid attention to this one blade of the grass, and if that leaf falls off of the tree, that Hashem caused that to happen. Or does he have angels and things like that to take care of those things? No, so. Okay, fine. I get what you're saying. No, but that's a different. No, that's a different discussion because that's saying of how exactly does the Ashkacha Pratis, how does God exactly run the world? That's a different discussion. But we're saying it's for sure God. That's what I'm saying. It's not another entity. Meaning, in that debate, one side is not saying to the other the Malach was appointed by God, and now the Malach is by himself with his own power. There's Mayor Malach who's running, you know, Hershey's life, and he's now is in charge of Hershey's life. Because, you know, it's Hashem. And then maybe the way it runs in this factory of the world is that the Malach is the one who's carrying it out. Which is that what we do say. You know, that there's different... And you're right, though, that's very... That I'm not. That, that we're not going to get into because it's mamish like That's a whole very difficult and it's hard to understand. And this very, very hard sugya. So we'll stay... That, yeah, but 100%. So he says like this over here. Continues. Rabbi Yochanan Didei. Rabbi Yochanan said by himself, Omar... And this is not in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It's interesting he specifies this here. Which is interesting over here, which is just a nuance, but it's still fascinating. What's the difference between saying somebody's an Ove Devodazara and Kafar Be'ikr? That's why that Pirush went through that whole thought process, is because an Ove Devodazara is a certain way of thinking that God basically made the world and he appointed ministers to run it. Kofar Be'ikr is deeper than that. Kofar Be'ikr is saying there's no God. Kofar Baker is saying the whole thing is like a big splashed canvas that just happened. It's Kofar Baker is saying the Big Bang, that the world just boom, pop, and that's, and everything just came out of nowhere. That's a Kofar Baker. It's very different than Ove Devodazara. Rabbi Chama Barchanina Amar, Rabbi Chama Barchanina says, Ki'ilu ba'akol somebody who has haughtiness, his ego, which is interesting because just now we were saying before, somebody who has ego, he's going to fall into forbidden relations. Rabbi Chava Barchanina is saying somebody who has ego, has ego, it's as if he already broke all the forbidden relations, even if he never does it. Just having ego. 
Ksiv hocha, how does he prove this? It says in the Pasuk, To'avas Hashem kol gaval leiv, Ksiv hosam, kies kol ha-to'eva sa'el begomer. Yeah, so this, this word to'eva, he connects between the two ideas, and he says that ego is as if he broke all the forbidden relations of the Torah. Yes. What is worse according to Avodazara being an atheist? I'm not sure it's a good question. Kofabika Avodazara? But I'll tell you I'll tell you the challenge. Meaning it's probably probably halachically speaking. I think I think halachically speaking Avodazara, but think. But I have to prove it, I'm not sure. But if you're talking about theoretically, like psychologically speaking, probably a kofabrika is worse. Because in general, there's also an idea that if a person has passion, you can redirect his passion. The hardest thing to deal with, meaning if you're talking about in the Kirov world, but really not Kirov, in anything, if someone's a therapist or whatever, is, is apathy. Apathy is the hardest thing to deal with. Generally speaking, an atheist is apathetic. A lot of times atheists are like, okay, I don't believe in God, whatever. That's very hard to switch. Because it's like you're dealing with nothing. There's nothing to, you're dealing with a dead fish. How do you change the direction of the dead fish? Somebody who's an Ovei Devodazara, they're searching for spirituality. And maybe they found it in India instead of in Lakewood. So now you have to just redirect and realize, okay, you're somebody who's craving for spirituality. And we just need to redirect where you are. So logically, I would say Avodazara, But psychologically, I would say... But at least today, most atheists are not from atheists. Okay? That's what I'm saying. They're apathetic. From yeah, atheists, yes, mean they're not no, passionate about it. But, but I, I hate to break to you. Most, most Jews, and, and I would even say like Christians. Okay, Christians are easier. Why? Because Christians, they go around and they say you're Christian. What, is a, what defines a Christian? Yeah. One thing. You believe in Christ. You can't be a Christian. Like a Jew, you could be a Jew and say, I don't believe in God. Yeah. So we have a lot of Jewish atheists, but you can't be a Christian atheist. Okay. You say you're saying because we don't believe in leaving no, the religion. We're not, no, because we're religion. people will say, they'll say, uh, what is your national? I'm Jewish. You believe in God? No. It's, it's not an absurd no, because, but thing that's, to do this but all the time. But, but you'll never yeah. hear a Christian say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in God. I'm a Muslim, but I don't, it doesn't. Do you know why? Because, because that's actually a beautiful idea. Right, we believe exactly. in Judaism. You can't leave. You can't no, come no, in and you but, can't but leave. Not, that's how <laughs> that's thing. But yeah. the, that's a halakhic thing. But the, <coughs> the Jewish atheist in law herself will make a statement like that. On the one hand, they'll say, I'm a Jew, but I don't believe in God. Okay? Yeah. Now, um, but that's because at least they get a little bit of the truth. No, no because, because they find something new. The little God particle that's in our DNA, I think everybody has, sometimes the way you relate to God is denial, anger. You know, you're, you're relating. It's doing it negatively. It's yeah. Anger, it's, it's, but but it's, like, continuing on that thought, yeah. there are many Jews, and even so-called from Jews, who live in our circles. Yeah. Uh, maybe they're more agnostic than atheists, but 
even from and even yeah no, I when guess. i say from it's people living the lifestyle yeah i've met a lot of people who they were born and raised the lifestyle but they're so not from in bottles and line but they it's an act you know, yeah by the way you know it's a you know it's a i mean it's a very sad reality i don't think i think it's a, there's something that happened i don't know if you guys remember this there was something called call of the chauffeur you heard of call of the chauffeur no. call the hey, chauffeur call of the chauffeur call the chauffeur was like a real stain i would say on the I don't know you say the from community. I don't know exactly who it was. I was young when it happened, but I know the whole story. What basically happened was is that in New York, You're still young, really. yeah, still, right. <laughs> I was younger. <laughs> when I was young, <laughs> you, you you bring the age down in this room. <laughs> so he said, "Listen to this." There was a whole bunch of people, and this guy. I don't know exactly the story, but long story short, he made some sort of. He wanted to make Judaism more vibrant and more real and more exciting. So he made this program called Call of the Chauffeur. And people were basically going to upstate New York. He was combining, and I don't want to say, I don't know exactly what happened, but he was combining like yoga with, with therapy. Like said, he would go into a room, turn off the lights and everybody scream and release your trauma. Because also we know in the, in the from community, there was an issue and in general in the world, there was an issue with molestation. So a lot of people just had physical trauma of their childhood that they were carrying for all these years and they pushed it down. So he was trying to like help this. and. When he opened it, a lot of people went. Now then, the Rabbanim ended up coming out and saying it was very cult-like, even though a lot of big Rabbanim actually participated in the actual Call of the Chauffeur. I mean, we're not talking about some like side hippy-dippy. It was pretty mainstream when it happened. And then Rabbanim came out and they said it's, it's too cult-like, it's an issue. There was one guy who was running it like a guru and everything. The sad part of that story is not that it was cult-like, because I don't think anybody over there, I don't think they practiced any idol worship or anything like that. What was sad was is how many people were interested. Meaning, because that shows you that there was not people that were living with a vibrant, excited Judaism before that. And that's a massive, that really is the tragedy. Like, what you're saying is a very big issue. And that's what we're trying to fight in general by opening up shuls and programs and learning. Some people are like, why are we doing all this learning? Why are we doing this? The whole idea is, is that hopefully we're able to knock away and making people's Judaism more exciting, more vibrant. If we need more parties, whatever it is, people have ideas to make it real. Where it's not a dead fish, like I'm doing it because if I don't... If I don't do it, then my kid's never going to get married, and my grandkid's never going to have a so shidduch. We are in superstition. Yeah. No, really, the truth is, by the way, in the from community, one of the basic practical realities, which is holding everybody in check, is shidduchim. Right? A lot of people are just doing what they got to do, because now they have a kid, and now they have a grandkid in shidduchim. What's going to be with shidduchim? Nobody's going to marry him. So now I have to walk around, and people don't even think about their Judaism. You know, when I was a kid, I was raised religious, but like many of my peers went back and forth, okay? Yeah. I remember my father once telling me, he said, Freddie, I don't care if you stay religious or not, but if you have children, you have to stay religious. Why? Because it's important for them to pass it on to the next generation, okay? Yeah. So part of the reason I believed, I mean, I'm in a different place now, but that I stayed religious was I did want to marry a woman that I had in my mind. I wanted to have a, a, a home where my children would be raised religiously. If I didn't have children, I don't know that I would stay religious because... Yeah, but that, but that, yeah, but that's two things. That's two different things that we should be careful not to mix them because, in general, people joke about it. Sometimes they're up on him. If somebody comes and says, "Oh, you know, I have a child, a teenager who's going a little bit," not a teenager, have somebody in their twenties who's going to, a lot of times the rabbi will say, "Make sure he gets married to a good girl." They'll be like, "How does that solve anything?" There is a certain thing about marriage and having children which keeps a human being in check, which is necessary because the world that we're in is a crazy world. 
and you need an anchor holding you down in general. It shouldn't be just be everyone be free willy and then you have a big problem, right? That's too, uh, the idea. Right, that, that wasn't what I was talking about. No, no, you're I'm saying by having I kids, have, it keeps you. not to get married, but if yeah. I was going to have children, I had an obligation to that keeps you in check. The, the structure. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. That was my obligation. He said, at this point, if you don't stay religious, so what? You're not religious. It's like, it's it's not important to, unless you work in Chabad, obviously. Yeah. What's important to the big picture? The big picture is that we continue mm. the, the uh, tradition going Yeah. On. So, but those two things, I, I get what you're saying, but I want to actually say clearly, those two things, that a person, especially once they reach the age of marriable age, they should get married and have children. Why? Because that anchors a person to just generally be a more moral person than if they're single, you know, into their 30s and 40s, Things can start to get well, more. I will tell you this, and this yeah. is from personal knowledge, and it should not be a shock to anybody, especially with girls. The longer they're not married, the more chance they have going well together. For sure, okay. for sure. It happens all and the time. And sometimes it's beyond their control. Sometimes it's beyond their control. Beyond control. control. Yeah. It's, not, it's not something we can control, but I'm saying it. Yeah. You see it. I see it with, uh, I look at many of the classes, and yeah. you see the girls who got married 18, 19, 20, you know, the early 20s, most yeah. of them are from. The ones who get to 29, 30, forget it. Like, yeah. It's rare you'll find a firm. And by the way, that no is the reason. they grew up and what school they went to. Yeah, that's the reason why you need to have an anchor. You need to be married. You need to have children. And that anchors you in life to give you direction where it's not just about you, how you're mooding. In general, if you're single, I think the biggest thing that, that, that people who are single, it's challenging them. I know this from friends who are single or, you know, in-laws. The biggest thing is that they feel no responsibility. What they basically feel is when they wake up in the morning, if I don't wake up today or if I do wake up today, nobody really cares. It doesn't bother them. What? But it doesn't bother them. Right. What does it bother them? It do, for the most part, it doesn't bother them. You know, the whole trend of people who are single. Yeah. You know, in the 30s and, and what have you. And I think they live with it. I well, mean, the whole change. Think about the Muslim community. But if you look at, you know, the, the, the Jewish community, there's a real trend of not getting married, at least not early. And doing life early. But I'm looking at the from community. And yeah. the problem with these girls are, many of them, is they're raised with this business that they are going to get married and have kids, and then they start getting mad at God because they don't find their right one, and they see others. And also, the, the, the from community has no tolerance for singles. They have no tolerance for singles. It's a big a problem. Age, you know. No, no, today I think if you would ask any from Rabbanin, from communities, I think probably the biggest challenge facing the from community is the shidduch crisis. That's what everyone's talking about, the shidduch well, crisis. It's, not, it's a culture. It's a big, yeah. I, I was divorced for, let's say, five, six years, actually more, but let's say five, six years, I lived in a very, very from community. Yeah. Okay? You know how many times I was invited for Shabbat? Not from somebody other than a friend of mine who I knew before? Zero. Went to the same shul over and over and over again. There's no, and it's not that they're bad people. Yeah. There's no, um, they're, they're just not, that's it. You're either married or you're, yeah. you're somewhere else. You know, you're not part of our, uh, our thing. It's a big, it's yeah. a big, big issue. It's definitely a big, big issue. If you go to Central Park in yeah. New York, right. what? They're mamash. Mm-hmm. Central Park, they're mamash. Thousands? They're single. Right, Dad? Yeah. I'm not even out there. Thousands, what, like hanging out in Central Park? They're walking around and but that no, so sometimes and that's why people talk about the shidduch crisis. It's really a hard thing because it's not necessarily people don't want. It's about finding your person is not. It's really bashert. It's really like he said, what he said before in Sota. 
Kasha Kakriyas Yamsuf. It's really, it's a miracle every time. That's why it's such a big celebration today. <laughs> Talia and Brandon, Baruch Hashem, and God willing, by all the singles, that they will find the Bashar very soon. And we will not have this, you know, God willing, it will be very soon. God willing, yes. So, um, where were we holding? We went really on a, on a whole tangent there. It's very, oh, it was a cool train of thought. We basically solved, we basically solved all the problems. like, right? So we did Yes, we basically solved all the issues. In this room over here, we should pretty much... <laughs> we should pretty much say... What? That's it. You know, that's it. Now Mashiach should be here by now. I think, what is it? It's 9.50. He's late. I looked at Mashiach on that. What? On Mashiach Mechlal. Mashiach Mechlal? Good to me. Mashiach is much harder than the God. If what? Mashiach is much harder than the God. Yes, 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 yes. We're keeping it exciting. Okay, wait a second. He says like this. How do we start? How do we start on this whole tangent? How do we start on the whole tangent? Yes. Oh, haughtiness can. And second, and then we were saying. Oh, about oh, but you were saying about atheism. But yes, like you said, I'm just saying a very. This is something which, I would say, like you're saying, shadokim. It's a similar issue. If you sit down, which I have experienced this on a personal level before. If you sit down with somebody who is a cold atheist, I'm not talking about somebody who's a passionate atheist. Somebody who's a cold atheist that they just don't even care. Like if you say to them, okay, what's your view on Yiddishkeit and Judaism, whatever. And let's say it's a teenager. And he's like, I don't care. It's not like, oh, I'm like God and the poof and big bang. He's like, I just could care less. That is very, very, very difficult to change their mind. Why? Because they don't care. So when someone doesn't care, he's not even interested in listening. So he doesn't care. But but if you can excite (laughs) them or interest them. Yeah. But that's the challenge because what you're doing over there, like we just said, what you're doing over there is making something from nothing. To excite them or interest them is that they have no emotion of general excitement and now you have to create excitement. If somebody is against you, if somebody sits down with you and says, oh, Rabbi, I want to debate with you. I, by the way, I, I'm like old enough. Sons, it's like the yeah, exactly. I'm just old enough to have seen this with my own eyes. In yeshiva, you will literally see time and time again. Meaning, yes, there's the guys. It's very rare that a guy in yeshiva who's a rebel actually turns out to be a rebel once he gets older. That's what I've seen. My personal friends, and also from being in yeshiva programs as a mentor, you'll see sometimes there's a kid who's a Vilda Behema, right? He's the kid that somehow he's sneaking in, 16 years old, he's sneaking in full bottles of Smirnoff. Nobody knows what this kid is doing, right? The kid leaves yeshiva, he turns out to be a go-getter businessman, married, kids, he's a, he's a mafia, right? A lot of times the kids who start off as being rebels, they actually turn out to be very successful people because the whole rebel is really that they just have extra energy. They have an extra oomph that a lot of people don't have. And when they use that for the right thing, it goes off. It's amazing. But if somebody doesn't have any energy and he's just like, I don't care, it's very difficult to deal with. That's what we were starting with over here. That we were saying about the atheist or over there about the So I have to disagree with you from personal experience. <laughs> yes. I will share some no, 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 Yeah. Of all my children, I go from one extreme to the other in, in, in religious, in religious. Yeah. I have one daughter who was one of my firmest kids growing up. First, she started getting angry at God. Now, first, she started having questions and nobody could answer them. Then she got angry at God, and now she doesn't believe in God. I have another daughter who, she's having fun. She <laughs> doesn't care. My daughter, that one, the one who doesn't care, I, I, I'm convinced one day she'll come back. Because she's just going through a phase. But the other one, she made an educated, conscious decision that there's no God. Or if there's a God, it's not her God. 
In other words, it's a conscious decision. To, to get her to come back, you're going to have to, you know, it's like I always used to say, I could find myself not being from at all, but could I ever convert to Christianity? It goes against my DNA. No matter what, I couldn't do that. Yeah. You know? No, so I'll tell you the truth, by the way. Especially like this, every single individual person is very, 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 very specific and very complicated. So I can't say off the hand, oh, oh, you know, like this, like that. I feel like even generalizing when it comes, I wouldn't know unless unless I, I met any of right, daughters for a long period of time and got to know them. I'm, yeah. I'm using these two as examples because yeah. they're real life examples for me. No, so I'm saying I'm saying more the general rule, but I think every individual person is different. Like also it could be generally speaking, generally speaking, people's personally, I think generally speaking, people's religious stance comes from their experiences more than it comes from their knowledge or from their reasoning, right? Meaning, for example, a lot of people who grow up and they grow up in a home where Shabbos is a beautiful thing and they come and their father made Kiddush and they had this beautiful experience, Friday night meal and everything. Even if they don't understand a lot about Judaism, they feel warmth towards Judaism and therefore they like it. So how do you explain that? And it happens all the time. From the same family, going through the same experiences. No, so that's know, the thing. Everybody's different. So that's the. You want me to tell you a story? We yeah, say the same experiences. I know a family. I know a family. All of them are now in their seventies or eighties. So you're talking about an older family, okay? One of them is, one of them is the is the is the chief rabbi of a country. The other one is one of the rabbis of the biggest shuls in the world, without exaggeration. The other one works for the one who's the biggest, uh, the chief, the rabbi of the big shul. They're all rabbis. The oldest brother, the oldest brother, this is a real story that happened. The oldest brother was brilliant, the most talented out of all of them. And his mother always said it, and they always knew it. He was like head and shoulders above the chief rabbi in the big shul one. He was head and shoulders above. This guy, straight A's, top of the class, everything. Do you know how he went off the derech? He went completely off the derech. Why did he go off the derech? He was in yeshiva, and he was told that he was going to be the valedictorian of his graduating class. And he was clearly the valedictorian, okay? And he was a brilliant kid. Comes to the graduation day. He told his grandfather, who he was very close to, he was very close to his AD. He told him, come to my graduation, I'm going to be valedictorian. He was so excited to come out, and he was going to be announced the valedictorian. The day of the graduation, right before the ceremony, the principal comes over to him and tells him, we need to switch the valedictorian right. because there's another kid whatever. And the kid was smart enough to realize that they switched it because his father was a big donor to the yeshiva, the principal donor of the yeshiva, and they switched it. And this kid could never, he, and he even will tell you, he's brilliant. Meaning this guy, he actually passed away young. He had a heart attack. But his whole life, he would tell you that is the reason why. He, and even, I meaning he'll admit to you, meaning he's, he'll, you could sit down with him, a very, very, very intelligent man. All his kids now are head of, his, one of his sons is the head doctor of pediatrics in New York, Presbyterian or something. His kids are brilliant. He was brilliant. He'll tell you it's not for any intellectual reason. He could not, to stomach looking at being around religious people, he couldn't, he was so hurt and so embarrassed from that experience. That was it. So he's saying each kid from the same family, you never know. I mean, even something, even something as, I don't want to bring it in, but let's say one kid is, Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which meaning you can have from the same family many different children, nothing to do with the parents, and that's actually, by the way, as a parent, and I'm sure all of you guys, as a parent, I think that's the scariest thing. You could be the perfect parent, you could be a fantastic parent, and then let's say, let's say you're an unbelievable parent, and then let's say one of the teachers in your in your kid's school screws up epically and makes one of these mistakes where they, 
and your kid could go off the derech and he could have nothing to do with you and you did everything right and it's not your fault and you might feel like it's your fault and you tried your best and everything and nothing you can do about it. End the story. That's it. The kid goes off the derech because somebody else sent him off the derech. End the story. What? End the story. Yes. So we're holding now in the Gemara last part ending off this idea of ego being the source of uh, terrible things. So Ula Amar. Ula says that anybody who has big ego this is actually the fourth opinion in regards to big ego it's as if he built a mizbeach, an altar to serve idol worship as it says in Yeshayah that somebody who has a big ego it's as if he built an altar to serve idols (coughs) okay it says over here, just to end off with one last pirush, it says over here that somebody who has gasus or ruach, somebody who has ego, this is in the Mepharshim over here on the bottom, it's as if he was served idols and he is Kofar Baker. So before we were separated between the two, over here he says it's both. It says it comes from taiva, it comes from desire. So over here he says something very interesting, which is something a little bit more, what? Rive and derive. Over here he says something a little bit more interesting and also very practical. That he says a lot of times somebody will come to you and they'll build a whole chachma of why they're an atheist or why they're whatever. And really, what do they want? They just want to eat pork, right? So they're sitting there and like, I'm sick of all these rules. I'm not interested in all these rules of Judaism. So they make a whole uh, shaka vitaria of why they're not religious. And really, they just don't want to keep all the rules. So over here, he's saying, simple explanation. Why is it that somebody who has a big ego will end up falling into all of these traps and all these terrible things? Because they say, I just want to do what I want to do. I don't want to be told what to do. And it's very simple, and it comes from a place of desire. That a person has certain desires and drives, and he wants to release them, and therefore he has to make this whole situation in order to be free and do whatever he wants. Okay, we're going to take a 10 minute break now, and then we're going to go into Tsurba.